I want to introduce you uh, to Bruxy Cavey, who's going to come and spend a few moments with us. Bruxy's a lead pastor at the Meeting House. Uh, he is from Canada, eh? So we are glad to have um, a technical foreigner, I guess, in our midst. So would you welcome Bruxy? Thank you, man. Thank you. Uh, let's see, is this mic on? Is it working? Great. Can I just begin uh, in a way that doesn't really work for a sermon, and that's to start with the sermon illustration before the point of the sermon's been made, because it's happening right now. It's happening right here, right now, for me anyway, so I need to share. And that is hearing Ephraim speak just not only blessed my heart, but Help me see a passage differently that I have read through, I have preached on multiple times, and I have a freaking chapter in one of my books just on that, <laughs> just on that. Now I have to go back and rewrite. And I'm thinking, but part of what Ephraim sees and part, and part of what my blind spot prevents me from seeing is background, is narrative, is race, is history, and, and it just, we can't change who we are can't change who we are, but, but what we can become aware of is that all the more reason why we need each other, yes. right? So I can't become a black man, but I can say I need black men in my life to teach me the scriptures in a way that I just have inherent blind spots to, right? And, and whatever you are, you can't become the thing you're not, but don't because we need you to be the thing you are. I need you to stay the thing you are so that I can learn from you and you can learn from me. And the body of Christ, we really need each other in our differences. And some of us can be leaders and so-called experts in our own communities for decades and still have so much to learn. So thank you, Ephraim. Thank you. I'm just absorbing that passage in a whole new way right now. I forgot what I'm supposed to be talking about. Uh, so, uh, but I think I'm heading towards... Uh, concluding with the point that we need each other. And so remember that sermon illustration and you can just insert it at the right spot in the message when the time comes. Okay, can I pray? I need it. <laughs> Heavenly Father, thank you, thank you, thank you, not only for giving us Jesus, your son in the flesh, but continuing to enflesh your message through the body of Christ. I thank you for the beautiful diversity where we have each other's backs and we help each other learn. And then together, together, we're able to reach out to the world around us. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would continue to, to blow us as the wind of God, blow us towards Jesus and to the unity that we can find in him. In Jesus' name I pray. And all God's people say it. Amen, amen. Let me, uh, we're talking about the witness of the church in this uh, series, in this session. And um, so let me suggest three points that will be my sermon outline. And, and you'll notice it has nothing to do with what it printed in the program that I was gonna talk about because they made us write that like a couple of weeks ago and I'm a whole new person from a couple of weeks ago. So, <laughs> so I don't know. I think I wrote something because I had to. But um, So here, here's the thing. I would like to talk about three things that I think is gonna help the church reach out. Three things that will help the church reach out. One of them is a life-giving message. Can you say life-giving message with me? Life-giving message. Secondly, it would be an, a, a, an embodied compassion. An embodied compassion. Can you say embodied compassion. An embodied compassion. And then the third is uh, a miraculous unity. 
Let's say that, miraculous unity. Let me just uh, say a few things about each, and, and we'll be done. First of all, a life-giving message, a life-giving message, a life-giving message. One of my favorite quotes on the topic of evangelism from St. Francis of Assisi is, uh, you may know it, um, preach the gospel always, you know, and when necessary, use words. I love that quote, I love it so much, except for two small things, let me just point those out. Uh, this is one of my most favorite St. Francis of Assisi quotes, except for these two things. First of all, number one, he never said that. <laughs> Aside from that, it's my favorite Assisi quote, but we have no record of St. Francis of Assisi ever saying that, so let's just dispel that myth. And then here's the other little thing that I have with this message. Uh, it's wrong. <laughs> it's just wrong. Now, we need to live the gospel if we're going to give the gospel. We need to live the gospel, for, but, but to preach the gospel, it takes words. It actually takes, there's a message, there's content, there's a life-giving message that people need to hear. And if we say, well, I'm gonna preach the gospel always through my life, and when necessary, use words. The problem is it's always necessary. <laughs> to actually preach the gospel. Now you need to live the gospel, embody the gospel, yes, but just don't confuse that with evangelism. So first of all, for those of you who say, well I just live, that's how I evangelize, that's how I'm a witness, I just, I just live a really good life. I, I, I wanna talk to you afterwards, is your life that good? <laughs> who are you? And do people really come to you and say, I have scanned the horizon and all I know is you stand out as a uniquely amazing, loving, <laughs> compassionate person. Tell me where this comes from. <laughs> it seems a, a little um, self-important, I don't know. Uh, and the other thing it seems, I'd like to say on behalf of my non-Christian friends, it seems a little insulting to non-Christians to assume that they are living such base lives. But you see, everyone's made in the image of God. And Paul, everyone's made in the image of God. We don't lose that because of the fall. We're still referred to as image bearers of God, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. That continues for Christians and non-Christians alike. Everyone's made in the image of God. We have God stamped on our hearts. Also, uh, Romans, uh, the beginning of Romans, the Apostle Paul says, everyone has the law of God written on their heart, so we should expect to see goodness coming from all people. And, and, and so Christians don't hold the corner market on being made in the image of God or having a moral life. And so many of my atheist friends live very moral lives. And so for me to say, I will evangelize by just living a good life around you, and you will see how amazing the gospel is, I think is based both on insulting them and aggrandizing myself, and I need to repent. Next. <laughs> I felt bad saying this when I thought I was preaching against St. Francis. No one wants to preach against St. Francis when I realized he never said it. I said, all right. <laughs> Cut me loose, that's good. Uh, and, and so I want to talk to you about this, this, this word that we preach you know, in Romans chapter 15, or sorry, chapter 10, Chapter 10, verse 17, the Apostle Paul says, so faith comes from hearing, and hearing comes through the word about Christ. Faith comes from hearing this word about Christ. The word for word here is not the usual word for word, which is logos. The word for word here is the word rhema, which means a spoken word. And Paul encourages our hearts to say that when you speak the good news about Jesus, Faith comes along with that. The more we talk about Jesus, the more we generate faith. The gospel is a message that comes with its own um, power pack to generate faith in people's hearts. 
And the more we talk about it, we don't wait for people to somehow come to us and say, I've got this faith and, and I don't know where to put it, like playing spiritual pin the tail on the donkey. I just tell me what to do with it. We actually just generate conversations about Jesus, most naturally. I tell people at our church at the meeting house that the best evangelistic opportunity for you every week is Monday mornings, because that's usually the time at work when people say, how was your weekend? And for you, the most natural thing about your weekend should be to say, well, here's something that I learned at church. This is how, what God is saying to me. This is something that joyfully happened to me on the weekend. I'd love to tell you about that until they learn to stop asking you. But that should be the <laughs> natural response. And in fact, if you haven't spoken with folks, whether that's at work or at school or in the, in the regular a wharf and woof of your life, if you haven't uh, talked naturally about Jesus, then uh, it's probably worth asking yourself why you are uh, subconsciously avoiding the topic. Sometimes people say, I'm not sure how to bring it up. And I would say, actually, if it's the most important thing in your life, you, you don't need to really think strategically on how to bring it up. If you're not bringing it up, then your subconscious is doing the work for you. It is strategizing on how to intentionally avoid the topic. Right? If, you, if you had anything that important in your life, it was bowling, and you're a, you love bowling. Does anyone love bowling? I don't know, but if you love bowling, I guess I look like I could love bowling, maybe. But... Uh, <laughs> If, 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 you, if you loved bowling, and so much so that you went to a weekly like, bowling league rally, I mean, you're like wild for bowling. You not only bowl together, but you like sing songs about bowling. I mean, that's how much you love bowling. And then someone would get up and give a rousing bowling, encouraging message, and, and, you, and then you'd go away. And then, but if your friends at work had no idea that you liked bowling, it would just be a strange thing. They'd say, you're obviously embarrassed, and I understand why, that you love bowling. <laughs> But you would have to systematically avoid talking about bull. You just aren't being a normal person when you avoid talking about the things that are most important to you. And so to just free yourself up and to help people in your church free themselves up, just talk about Jesus so naturally. But talking about Jesus is the gospel. And that means it's not a gospel conversation too until he says it's the word about Christ, the rhema about Christ. Uh, a good conversation is not yet a gospel conversation. You can talk about a lot of good things, and you should. We should be well-rounded people who have wonderful conversations about many good things, but a good conversation is not a gospel conversation until it's a Jesus conversation. Okay, a good conversation is not a gospel conversation until it's a Jesus conversation. And even a God conversation is a beautiful thing. Have conversations about God, but there's nothing unique that we have to offer the world until we get to the Jesus bit. And then Jesus helps us see what God is really like, and then that changes everything. And so this is in, this, in the middle of this passage where in, in Romans 10, verse 9, the Apostle Paul has said that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, those three beautiful words, the first creed of the Christian church, Jesus is Lord. Uh, we, we just recited a creed. Let's say it together. Jesus is Lord. Ready? Here we go. Jesus is Lord. That was our liturgical moment brought to you by the Anabaptists. That's, just, that's all I know about lit liturgy. So it, <laughs> but I'm learning, I'm learning because we need each other. Uh, when you say Jesus is Lord, he says, and believe God raised him from the dead, you are saved, which is interesting to push back against a lot of contemporary evangelicalism. I grew up thinking that, that when we pray a prayer to invite Jesus into our heart, that's when we're saved. And so always getting people, we organize our church and our altar calls around getting people to embrace Jesus as Savior. Whereas now I've learned, and as I preach at the meeting houses, to encourage people not to invite Jesus to be your Savior, but to bend, to knee to Jesus, bend your knee to Jesus as Lord. Come enjoy a kingdom movement. Join a kingdom movement where Jesus is our leader, our master, our mentor, our Lord. And when you submit to Jesus as Lord, the good news is Paul says you get him as Savior as part of the package. 
You see, when we come to Jesus and say, I'll follow you anywhere. I, I'm ready to join in with this movement that we're a part of. Where is this going? How can I sign up? He becomes our savior. But if we just get people to say, you know, free gift, it's just a free gift, just pray this prayer and get saved, they may spend the rest of their life working out whether they want him to be their Lord. And, and remember, when Paul says a free gift of grace, he wrote that to people who are already saved. That's what he writes in Romans to the church. Don't get cocky. Don't think you earned it. No, you didn't. It's a free gift of grace. But that's not how Jesus preaches the gospel to non-Christians. He doesn't just say free gift, free gift. Just pray a prayer and then don't worry about anything. He, he says, follow me. Right? Follow me. Follow me. And that means we have something to offer then in this life through the gospel. It's not just about getting saved so we can go to heaven when we die, but it's entering into the kingdom now. I was speaking at a conference like this, and, and my, my seminar was, was about the gospel, and, and, and a guy saw that in the program, and he came up to me, and he said, so Bruxy, are you a cross guy, or are you a crown guy? <laughs> and I didn't know you had to choose. So my best understanding is that, I mean, the cross is the center, but the cross is the coronation of our king because what the Romans are doing ironically, under God's sovereignty, he has them doing in a way that is making a statement about Jesus ascending to his throne as the king of an upside-down kingdom that's not afraid to suffer on behalf of the love of enemies. And so, so as they give him a king's scepter and a king's robe, and then if you're not catching the symbolism, they put a crown on his head, crown of suffering, and then, and then in case you still haven't got it, they nail, here's Jesus, king of the Jews, duh, and then we say, this is actually the inauguration of our king for a new kingdom, a kingdom where Jesus said, pick up your cross, die with me, come along with me, I'll show you the way through death and through enemy love, who will pray for forgiveness of the people who are killing you, and then rise again, not to vengeance, if this was any other God story, any other death and resurrection story of any other deity, when they rose again, that would not be good news, that would be bad news. Yay, we killed the God, good news. He's alive again? That sounded like saliva. Again, that's, <laughs> that was an earlier message, I think. That, it's, it's busy in my brain, sorry. I, He's alive again. That'd be bad news, right? That'd be this time it's payback. Do, 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 do. Instead, it's he's alive with the message of forgiveness, with the message of reconciliation. See what you can do to me? I'm still coming back. I'm coming back with, with forgiveness. This is just so beautiful. So that so that there is this beautiful uh, synergy between the cross of Christ and the kingship of Christ that's embedded right in the gospel narratives. You know, Paul says he preaches the cross. He said in 1 Corinthians 1, I just want to preach the cross. But at the end of the book of Acts, the last book in the book of Acts says that all that Paul preached was the kingdom. He just kept preaching the kingdom. That's what Acts sums up the whole message of Paul. So is it the cross or is it the crown? The answer is yes. Jesus is our Lord and, and our Lord teaches us the way of suffering love and forgiving reconciliation. And, and that's the kingdom that we're a part of. He's our leader and he's our Lord. See, this is a life-changing message that changes our lives here and now, just not there and then, but here and now. It changes how we live. Here, can you do a silly illustration with me? Sometimes little visual things help. Uh, this is something that I've taught at our church for help, helping people just communicate this. Can, can you lift up your forearm like this? We'll pretend it's a timeline. Let's say you're born at your elbow and you die at your fingertips. Okay, that's your timeline. Now, most religions try and offer some form of an afterlife. You can bump up. Now, this is the new dimension, the afterlife, and it starts at the end of the fingertips. And so you might go to paradise. You might go to nirvana. You might go to heaven. 
but you go somewhere good after you die, and that's like the king. And so when we think of the kingdom of heaven, sometimes that's what we think. Um, I mean, some religions, you just, it's a little confusing, but you're, <laughs> for the most part, you leave this life, and then you get into the next life. But what does Jesus teach? The kingdom of heaven is like this, right? And you enter your eternal life the moment you accept Jesus Christ as Lord. Now you've actually started your eternal life now. Oh yeah, the, your earthly life's already behind you. This is your heavenly life. Start living like it. So, so you want to live an eternity of love? Let's start living that love now. You want to li live an eternity of unity? We live the unity now. An eternity of peace? We start becoming peacemakers now. And then our physical death is a small blip, a small transition, because we already started our eternal life already. So, so now the gospel is this invitation to, don't clap, makes me nervous. I'm Anabaptist, we don't respond. Uh, <laughs> No, it's okay, I grew up Pentecostal, so can I get an amen? All right, amen. So, so now, when we preach the gospel, it's not just, I want you to believe that there can be a better life after you die, because many people, even today, they're just so enmeshed in their life now, they're not thinking about life after they die. You know, after, uh, we were talking about this at our church recently, after World War II, when the four spiritual laws were crafted, uh, people were thinking about what happens after you die, what happens after you die, and there's evangelism explosion in so many ways, and now people just aren't even asking that question. They say, I want to know how I live right now. And we can say, well, we're not switching the gospel to meet your needs. The gospel already met that need and already asked that question. It changes everything about how you live now. You wake up in a different universe, a universe created by a God who is love. That's everything. Sorry, that's my alarm. So time to get up. It's embarrassing. Okay, I gave myself a three-minute warning, so that's my first point. Let me do... <laughs> Okay, we're gonna, we're gonna skip embodied compassion. I mean, you know the drill, love people, all right. But I gotta make it all the way to miraculous unity or my sermon illustration off the top will be a waste of time. Ephesians chapter two, the dividing wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles, warring people, people with a history, a history that says you should not be able to get along. There's too much damage done to be able to forgive. And there's too much stereotyping that is allowed to be done when you live separately for generation to generation. You, have, you don't relate to people anymore, you relate to stereotypes of what the people are. And they're not, even the stereotypes are just based on the most malicious passed on memes of, of ideas that, and so uh, these are the groups that have no reason to get along. And, and Ephesians 2 says that when Christ died, part of what died on the cross was not just our sin, but it was also our religion. And the, the, the wall that separates Jew from Gentile is destroyed. It actually it uses the phrase killing our hostility. Our hostility was between, between each other was killed by Christ on the cross. And, and so one of the great apologetics, lived apologetic was a phrase he used uh, Ephraim, one of the great apologetics of the church, then the reason for why we, 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 why we believe what we believe is the sociological miracle of people who shouldn't be getting along, not only becoming friends, but calling each other family and saying that more than any nationality, any race or any history, it's the shared history of Jesus that has now called us into a family where 
I, now we get to start like, like, like kids who are separated at birth, but now as adults are starting, it's like, I want to hear your story. What, what, what have you learned in life? And how can I learn from you? And, and this, this is what Jesus was really betting on, you know, in his John 15 prayer, that this sociological miracle would be the ultimate miracle that, that would give evidence to his truth. And you got to look over church history and say, how are we doing with that? Right? How are we doing with that? Uh, ever since I, I was a kid, um, this goes back, but uh, my, my parents, I think, taught me well to say, here's one of the greatest miracles, Bruxy, you ever see. And if we only just stayed in our own church, you wouldn't see it. But it's, it's, uh, it's black Jesus following in North America when you have a group of people who have every reason to say no to Jesus, to say this is the God that you use to destroy families? This is the, you, this is the God you serve? Here's a group, here's a demographic, a social demographic who has every single reason to say, I'll choose any religion but the religion of those people. And, and instead had the wisdom see through it and say, no, Jesus shines through. Even your hatred can't cloud his love. And we're going to embrace Jesus and then serve back to you a better version of following Jesus than you ever showed us. And, and, and was, I'm so blessed. And as a kid, my parents would help say, keep your eyes open, Bruxy, and see. And I'm so glad that they did. See what God is doing. And, and you only will experience that if you allow the cross to bring us together. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll say this in closing. We, uh, one of the challenges, though, is that those of us who are divided, even by theology, uh, we'll have to find ways. And I want to challenge fellow pastors, but all of us, to find ways to speak well of each other behind each other's back. And that's hard. We are saying this in one of the workshops earlier. When people come to your church, if they've come from another church, often that's because they've had a negative experience there. And as they share that experience with you, it feels like emotional comfort food. You just want to feed on that energy. I mean, you say, oh, that's a shame. That's terrible. But subconsciously, you're saying, tell me more. Tell me more. <laughs> Why is that church down the street so stuck up and that church down the street so theologically off base? And why is, tell me why our church is so important to you. And we can end up fueling a flame that is more demonic than of the Holy Spirit. And so part of helping people mature will be getting them to the point where they can appreciate how the Holy Spirit is using the imperfect church they came from because believe me, they'll get to find out about the imperfections in your church too. And as pastors, it means when we preach, we've got to find ways to actually preach our distinctives clearly, which means when you preach your distinctives, you're saying you disagree with other churches. That's just true. You do. Um, pick a topic. We're egalitarians at the meeting house. We believe women, and I believe it passionately. Not only should women be pastors, we need to hear from the other half of the image of God in humanity. I mean, you look at church history, and how we doing, brothers? I think... How many, how, <laughs> I grieve the loss of what the church could have been for 2,000 years because half of the image of God was muted, was silenced, was pushed. God was unable to speak fully and we did that. And we recently preached a sermon on this and I was able to conclude by just as a man apologizing to the sisters, on, as, a, as a man representing the authority, the pastor of the state, before we did a series on racism, I was able as a white man to apologize. I'm ticking all the boxes. And I was able to just, but do corporate repentance and say, we're sorry, but we need you so much because our future needs to be different than our past.
Now I say all this to say, I believe this with that much passion, and yet I have to stop and say, but my complementarian brothers and sisters are not, I can't write them off and say, well, you're just a bunch of good old boys, a bunch of bigots, you're just trying to hold on to power, you just, it's also possible they just are really firmly convinced by scripture that women shouldn't be pastors. I don't like that. That just, that just doesn't feel good to me. But how can I speak well of them? And so I had to try and discipline myself to do that in this series and say, I want to say that church down the street, I don't want you saying about them, they're just a bunch of bigots who don't learn scripture because you know what they're saying about us, we're just a bunch of cultural sellouts who are trying to be popular and we don't really care about scripture. And I don't want any of us saying either of that. And so it's going to start right here. Let's not say that about them. Let's just say we love them and we know that they love the scriptures, and we, or at least we trust that they do, and, and, we, and we think that they're wrong. Can we say all of that at the same time? I think we can, but it's hard. And so I just want to commission us to cheer for and champion what we believe to be true. Don't mute that for unity. Don't mute that for unity. That's a fragile unity. We're afraid of division based on disagreement, but, but a real unity can handle disagreement. So, so we talk about our distinctives. In fact, I want to seek out people who I disagree with because then I get to practice and demonstrate the sociological miracle that the cross of Christ has obtained for us. And then I try and speak well of them behind their back while saying I think they're wrong. You can't find that in politics. You can't find that in world religions. You can only find that kind of agape, that kind of unity in Christ. Okay, uh, I'll quit there. Thank <laughs> you.